Ah, nothing like the sounds of raindrops hitting the leaves right in the middle of the Costa Rican jungle. That's where I am right now. Welcome to Reset with Amber Lyon, the official podcast for the natural medicines news website, reset.me. And for those of you who've been wondering where I've been, I've been continuing this incredible worldwide journey investigating Mother Nature's gifts to mankind, plant medicines. And I'm just enjoying a cool breeze, hearing thunder in the background, and just watching this incredible rainfall while watching hawks and hummingbirds fly by me and, and realizing that I'm one of the luckiest people on earth that I can actually call this a job. I've been continuing to research uh, dragon's blood, cambo frog venom, and of course, ayahuasca. Tomorrow I head to Peru to continue my research uh, on ayahuasca, which I believe is one of the most profound medicines on earth for mankind. Before I got to Costa Rica, I was in New York City and I had the pleasure of sitting down with one of my heroes, uh, Graham Hancock. To sum up Graham Hancock in a sentence, he is a badass, truth-telling man who's on the right side of history and isn't scared to put his neck on the line to fight for truth. Graham Hancock is an explorer and journalist who loves plants and really hates the war on drugs. It's incredible to feel the passion just exuding off of him when he talks about the war on drugs and how much of a failure it is. Graham is the author of the major international bestsellers, The Sign and the Seal, Fingerprints of the Gods, and Heaven's Mirror. His books have sold more than 5 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 27 languages. Graham is one of the world's leading experts on the historical use of psychedelics. He's become recognized as an unconventional thinker who raises controversial questions about humanity's past, including the belief that psychedelics played a key role in the intellectual evolution of humanity and can help save mankind from going extinct. Head to YouTube and search Graham Hancock Band TED Talk. He gave a TED Talk on this topic, pretty much saying that our intellectual evolution was, was a result almost directly of psychedelics. And... Ted banned his talk, which only made it further just explode across the internet, and it's well worth a listen, as it this, is this podcast, and it was such an honor to sit down with one of my heroes. Hope you enjoy the show. I'm going to continue to sit out here in the rainforest and just listen to the sound of the rain hitting the leaves, and just really thank the universe for uh, gifting me with, with this life. Thank you, Graham, so much for joining us. That's a total pleasure. Really nice to sit down with you. Yeah, it's good to finally meet you. I've been such a fan of your work and uh, I, I love your speeches about the war on consciousness and just how you've really become a leading advocate for legalization of, of these substances and for freedom of consciousness. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an issue that is not, that is not properly understood. A, a lot of people associate psychedelics with, um, with trivia and recreation. Um, and speak about getting high and all such all such language, um, but actually, what's at stake here is that it's a fundamental to me a fundamental human rights issue, and it's not trivial at all. And that is the issue of cognitive liberty. Are we free as adults in the society we live in to make choices, sovereign choices, about that most intimate and personal part of ourselves that is our consciousness. And if we are not free to make those decisions, then 
the whole notion of liberty in our society is rotten at the core. It's just pointless to rattle on about democracy and the great achievements of Western democracy and actually go around the world trying to impose that on other people while we have this rotten system that says that adults cannot be trusted to make decisions about their own consciousness and that the state will actually send them to prison and ruin their lives and destroy their reputations completely mess them up forever if they are caught in possession of a psychedelic. Uh, this is something that we need to sort out, and we need to sort it out very, very rapidly. So I think that it's actually a litmus test for the kind of society we live in. If that society will punish us for making decisions about our own consciousness, there's something seriously wrong with it, and we should distrust everything else that that society says. We need to make a big change here, fundamental fundamental human rights issue. And, uh, and I do feel it's important to, to make that clear. You know, I've often in the United States found myself uh, sit, sitting face to face with, with staunch Republicans on one issue or another. And they tend, these days, tend automatically to be anti any kind of, any kind of drug. And I tried to point out to them, I, I thought the Republican Party was about individual freedom. You know, I thought that was the, I thought I did naively. I'm British. I thought that was what the Republican Party was about. And if it's about individual freedom, then you have to you have to accept the right of adults to make decisions about their own consciousness and about their own bodies. I'm not saying, you know, that if we behave negatively towards somebody else, there should be no laws to govern it. There are. We already have huge numbers of laws in our society which rightly and properly govern our behavior towards others. If we get in somebody else's face, if we cause them harm, if we cause them damage, laws exist to cover that. But we don't need laws that patrol our consciousness and that give the state the keys to our consciousness. And this is a, this is a subset of broader issues concerning health, uh, where, again, there's a very negative tendency in Western societies. It's happened already for decades in Britain, and it's happening in America now as well. For the state to say, you know, we are taking control of your health. We are the experts. We know what's best for you, and we will dish it out to you. Uh, and actually, again, that's an issue of fundamental personal freedom. It's our responsibility as adults to learn about our health and to make informed decisions about our health. We should never devolve that entirely on experts and on governmental agencies. And I think that's part of the greater human rights issue is the health issue, because you have some of these psychedelic substances approving to be profound cures for mental health disorders. Yes, look what we've been missing out on for the last half century during the war on drugs. We have these amazing medicines for, for curing all manner of, of conditions, both physical conditions and, and uh, mental conditions. You know, pe pe people live lives of intense stress and difficulty in, in, in the modern world. Um, and also something else important, divorced from the spiritual side of our nature. Uh, modern society is extremely materialistic, and I don't just mean in the in the sense of um, uh, materialism as such, where we we love material things, but also the underlying ethic of our society is that there is nothing else to reality except that 
which can be weighed, measured, and counted, that there is nothing else to reality except the material side of reality. And that's why there's a, a very powerful faction within science who we can refer to as materialist reductionists who say, for example, that consciousness is just an accidental byproduct of brain activity, that we develop these big brains over millions of years of evolution to compensate for our rather small and weak bodies. We have these cunning brains, and, and they're very complicated. It's a result of a physical evolutionary process, and as an accidental byproduct of that, we get this thing called consciousness, uh, that, that consciousness can be reduced to brain activity. Uh, and therefore, they, they have no room for spirituality in that, in that paradigm. Uh, they have no room for a notion, for example, of life after death. If um, we are just, if our consciousness is just our brain activity, then when our brains are dead, our consciousness is, is over. It's just, we're just meat. This is the, the mainstream paradigm, and, and it leaves very little room to consider any other possibility that we might actually be spiritual creatures, as all of the ancient traditions maintain, incarnating in physical bodies. And, and I believe there is a, spir a spiritual yearning in humanity, and I don't believe that that is met anymore for many of us by the mainstream religions, but particularly by Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. I don't think that they meet those needs for more, for more and more people. And what's being put in place of that is just this crass materialism where there's no belief in anything at all, and uh, a complete dis disillusionment and disenchantment sets in. Well, the psychedelics offer direct experiences that challenge that view. Uh, anybody who's worked uh, extensively with psychedelics is likely to have had experiences that suggest there's much more to reality than just the material realm, that we may be immersed in a, a sea of multiple realities uh, which are not normally accessible to our senses, and that the psychedelics allow a retuning, if you like, of the receiver wavelength of the brain and, and open, us, open our consciousness up, allow our consciousness to receive other levels of reality that are normally closed off to us. Now, people who have not worked with psychedelics might regard it as absolutely just crazy and lunatic to suggest that there may be intelligent entities in those other realms who actually can communicate with us. But many who've worked with psychedelics have had that experience of communication with intelligent entities who shamans, who are the masters of this in, in tribal and hunter-gatherer societies, call spirits. This is the, this is the spirit world of shamanism. And I... I think that mainstream scientists, materialist scientists, who just pause a moment before they scoff at the notion of a spirit world and of non-physical entities, because actually they don't have any proof on that issue at all. All they have is their paradigm, their reference frame, which says that such things are impossible. Uh, and it's for that reason that I challenged Richard Dawkins, um, and I recorded his answer because I stood up and questioned him in a public meeting to go drink ayahuasca would he be willing to would he be willing to challenge his profoundly materialistic view of reality bearing in mind that there are other cultures very ancient uh, who who believe that reality is more complicated than that and that ayahuasca and other psychedelics can be a gateway to those other realities would he be willing to challenge his own view of reality and go uh, go drink ayahuasca or take psilocybin well to his credit he said he would but as far as i'm aware this was more than two years ago now he still, <laughs> he hasn't, still, hasn't, he done still hasn't done so i always find it interesting when people can criticize psychedelics or or the new thought patterns that come from the use of psychedelics but they've never tried 
ayahuasca I know. or, or it's psilocybin. You see, I, I think that that is, that is the first thing that, that anybody who wishes to speak on this subject, that's the first thing they need to do in order to, in order to come to the table. People often answer to that, well, I don't need to break my finger to know that it will be painful. That's the answer that they give. Uh, but I don't think that's a good enough answer because we, we're actually talking about an experience here. And what, what those who've never taken psychedelics tend to do if is to dismiss the experiences of others. Well, I think if you're going to do that, the very first thing you have to do is be willing to have that experience yourself. That, I think, gives you a right to sit at the table. It may not mean that what you say next is correct, but at least you can sit at the table and have an informed conversation about the subject. If you've never had the experience yourself, then really I think it's, it's completely irrelevant, anything that, that uh, you, you, know, you may have to say on the subject. And you have extensive experience with the use of psychedelics, particularly particularly ayahuasca. ayahuasca. Yeah. What what brought you to psychedelics in the first place okay. to to drink that first cup? Well, it's a long it's a long process. Um, I uh, had my first psychedelic experience in 1974 when I was 24 years old uh, in England at a festival at a place called the, was the Windsor Free Festival, which for me actually marks the official end of the 1960s, even though it was in 1974, um, because it was broken up savagely by the police the next day. Um, I had an amazing experience with LSD at that festival. Uh, it was my first experience with LSD, and uh, I just spent a magical night of 12 hours uh, as though I'd been cast back in time and was was moving through some sort of Viking encampment, and there were all kinds of um, wonderful imaginations that that took place, and I found myself doing battle with monsters, and but not in a negative way. It was all it was just a great adventure. It was a wonderful adventure. When I came out of it the next day, which happened rather suddenly, about twelve hours later, like a door had shut. I started to think about it. I went to a friend of mine who had taken LSD with me the same night, and he was in a state of complete collapse in the tent. He'd never left the tent. He was in a terrible way. And I thought, my goodness, you know, if this, if this power were to go the other way, I'm not, sure I could, I'm not sure I could handle it. And the result was that I didn't take psychedelics again for many, many, many years, even though I'd had a magical experience myself that night. It was only uh, in the 2000s, actually 2003, when I was 53 years old, that psychedelics again crossed my path. And they crossed my path because I'd begun work, I'd begun research on a, on a book, a nonfiction book called Supernatural Meetings with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind. It was eventually published in 2005 under that, under that title. And that was a book um, which ended up being about shamanism and altered states of consciousness. When I originally conceived it, I wasn't sure what it was going to be about. I was interested in the issue of human origins, but I wasn't sure where I was going to go with it. As I began the initial research and started to look at it, what I found was that the story of human origins from the last common ancestor with the chimpanzee is for millions of years incredibly boring and really nothing of interest seems to happen and it's very difficult to differentiate us from other members of the ape family. Um, but about two and a half million years ago we start to make stone tools. They are also very dull. Uh, the same patterns are replicated and passed down without any lateral thinking for the next million or so years. And this carries on, this very archaic, very locked-in, very narrow frame of reference of our species. But 
long after we've become anatomically modern, which is about 195,000 years ago, long after that, less than 100,000 years ago, really less than 40,000 years ago, something extraordinary happens to humanity. And we, it's as though we go through a, just a gigantic change. And the evidence is suddenly confronting us that we've become symbolic creatures, that we're creating the most amazing art, outstanding art, as good as anything that's done today, in the painted caves and rock shelters all around the world. It, we've had a moment of enlightenment. How this spreads around the world all around the same time, I'm, I'm not sure. I have to think about the hundredth monkey effect and things like that, but it does. And, and I began to look at what was this? What was it that caused this? How did it, how did it happen? Now, all tribute to the, the late, great Terence McKenna and his uh, book, uh, Food of the Gods, which, which long ago indicated that psychedelics played played a role in the in the human story but Terence was really looking at the last 10,000 years I came across the work of a of an academic uh, professor David Lewis Williams at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa who'd been studying cave art in depth since the 1970s and since the 1970s proposing what was initially a very unpopular hypothesis that the this dramatic surge into consciousness this awakening of human consciousness and the art that accompanies it was the result of visionary experiences that our ancestors had encountered psychedelics, perhaps initially sampling a psilocybin mushroom as a food item and unleashing extraordinary experiences, which they then manifested in their art. They would, they would have these experiences of what they construed as a spirit world, and they would then return to the normal, alert, problem-solving state of consciousness, and they would, from memory, depict on the rock shelter or cave walls the imagery that they'd seen in that visionary state. And, and David Lewis Williams really drives this home with very detailed documentation and evidence, including comparisons with work that was done with human volunteers and hallucinogens in the 1960s and 1950s. And he makes an extremely convincing case that actually this breakthrough moment in the human story is a result of our ancestors' experimentation with psychedelics. Now, I've always believed as a researcher that I have to experience what I'm writing about. When I was writing about underwater ruins, I had to learn to go scuba diving and, and spent seven years scuba diving looking at, at structures underwater. Same with, with shamanism and altered states of consciousness. I, I realized that I had to have the psychedelic experience again to go back to that place I'd been in 1974, have that again. And I began to look into it. And then I found, I found out, that's when I found out about ayahuasca, the vine of souls, the vine of the dead in the Amazon, how it's been used in the Amazon by shamans for thousands of years. And today, there are many shamans who drink ayahuasca who paint their visions. And I started to look at those paintings and I immediately saw lots of cross-references with the cave art. So, you know, I couldn't go back and interview an upper Paleolithic caveman, but I could go to the Amazon and drink ayahuasca and talk to shamans there. So I arranged to do so. And that was my first, in fact, my first 11 experiences with ayahuasca in the Amazon were at the beginning of 2004. And, and uh, initially it was a research project, but it had such a dramatic effect on my own life uh, such a powerful transformatory experience that I decided I would continue to work with ayahuasca and I have done ever since. And I think that's something that happens. It happened to me as well. I woke up the next morning after my first ayahuasca experience and I did a 180 in my journalism career and I realized 
I didn't want to cover the symptoms of an ill society yeah. anymore, wars and, and fighting and all the corruption. Instead, I wanted to focus on these plants and yeah. healing and love and, and solutions. Yes. And and I think that's something that happens to, to many people. And the, the fact you're able to go down and, and try ayahuasca, that was back in 2004 when there yeah. wasn't a lot of press about it. There wasn't, no. It <laughs> were was... you, what were you feeling going into your first ceremony? Were you... Well, were you um, a little nervous? My wife that? Santa and I always do these things together, and we uh, had some doubts. We had some we had some doubts about this. As a matter of fact, we did have one session in Belgium before we went because I just wanted to, I wanted to know what I was getting myself into, and we had quite a good time in Belgium, handled by a good um, Dutch shaman who who knows what he's doing. Um, and 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 it was it was I didn't really have a very deep experience that night, um, and and that helped in a way to take the fears away from me. That at least okay, I'd, I'd done that. And then we went down to the Amazon, and then we're we're actually drinking in the in a jungle clearing in the middle of in the middle of the jungle. It's a completely different setting, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very power. It was very powerful. But but I I'm, I was pleased that I'd had one experience before before going there, so that I not only did I have to deal with the alienness of the ayahuasca experience, but also with the alienness of the the jungle realm, um, which is you know very special and an and amazing place but powerful and overwhelming in its own way um, so I was a little bit prepared for it and a little bit ready and I had made contact I'd, I'd found somebody in England who had connections in Iquitos and beyond that uh, into the Akayaku and other places deeper into the jungle and I was able to use those connections to get myself to places where I could I could drink ayahuasca in fairly experienced hands which is important i think it's important that that we work with people who know what they're doing with ayahuasca yes because it can go we've we've all seen i mean this is an extremely powerful medicine there's a lot of magic involved Uh, there are a lot of people trying to use it for good and for yes. healing but others uh, yes. have more more sinister plans as we in, in, indeed so um, it's it's a great power ayahuasca uh, and and this is the interesting thing because those who've worked extensively with ayahuasca I think will agree that there's a personality behind ayahuasca this is not this is not simply a chemical project that's going on here um, and more and more Westerners are speaking of her as an entity almost like a goddess, uh, Mother Ayahuasca. And that, of course, drives materialist, reductionist scientists into a fury and makes them foam at the mouth, the very notion that there, that we might, you know, that we would even dare to suggest that there might be intelligences beyond this material realm. But that is just a fact of the experience of Ayahuasca that many have shared. Not everybody meets her as a female entity. There are tribes in the Amazon who construe the spirit behind ayahuasca as male. Um, but what is universal is the sense that there is a, a powerful, loving intelligence operating behind this brew. Now, as I've thought about it over the years, I, that's what I would say is going on. I think we are dealing with some kind of goddess, and I actually don't care whether Richard Dawkins approves of that or not. Um, and I may be wrong. I accept that this may be just a projection of my own my own mind. Sure, how, how can we know? But that's at the level of experience is what is what I'm experiencing. And here's my theory on this: that that benign entity who I construe as the mother goddess of our planet and and deeply connected to the great rainforests um, has 
time to work with individual human beings. And the way that she does so is by accessing human consciousness. See, we're so locked into the material realm that normally we're shut off, largely shut off to these influences. Well, we may not be completely shut off to them, but they may be working on us in subliminal ways. But uh, with ayahuasca, it brings down your shields. They, they come, that, that's essential in order for this benign and positive entity to contact us, that the shields have to come down. We, we do become um, very open with ayahuasca. There's an opening of the heart and, and a willingness to allow these influences in. That's part of it. And that's where the danger comes because I maintain absolutely that ayahuasca is a positive and beneficial medicine and that the entity behind it, if she's real, and I think she is, is an entity that is filled with love and seeks the best for us. But in order for her to access us, we have to lower our shields. And when we lower our shields, other things can come in as well. And I've seen that happen. I've seen situations in sessions where something dark enters the session, where, where a person can be literally possessed, where, where a person can have their whole life bent out of shape for two or three years afterwards. This does happen. And when it happens, it almost always happens because the so-called shaman who's running the ceremony doesn't know how to hold the space or actually may be bad-willed themselves. See, not all shamans are just these wonderful, humble, mm -hmm. generous-spirited facilitators of the medicine. A lot of them are actually big egos and big personalities, and, they are, and they, some of them, sadly, are seeking power through the ayahuasca ceremony. And the and ayahuasca does create a situation where you, because you're giving your power to the medicine, if there's a negative person there, that person can exploit that in some ways. We do become very suggestible with ayahuasca. So I say to people, if you're going to drink ayahuasca, really do your research very, very, very thoroughly. And trust word of mouth, talk to other people, ask them the experiences they've had with this or that shaman, whether the shaman is practicing in the West or, or uh, in the Amazon indeed. Speak about it, learn about it. It's your responsibility, that's your consciousness, that's your life. You are not going into some light recreational trip. This can be a life-changing experience. It has changed the lives of many. It is usually, usually a very positive experience, even when it's difficult, even when it's painful, the lessons we learn from ayahuasca help us. And, and we may go through a hard time, but we're going to come out of it stronger and with a lot to think about. But it's not an easy thing. And there are downsides and risks. And it's important to do the research in advance and to be sure that you're drinking with a trusted person. And preferably, if you can arrange it, that the group that you drink with are also people you have some familiarity with and know and, and trust. I, that's, these, these are the lessons I've learned along the years, that I would, rather, I would rather choose to drink with a group of people, all of whom I know and trust, if I can possibly arrange that. Mm -hmm. It's not always that possible, but if I can arrange it, that's my choice. That I don't have any doubts about anybody I'm drinking with. There's nobody there who's going to exploit me psychically or any other way. We're all there because we love one another and we're there to, to share the bond. That, that and when you say exploit brings. psychically, what does that mean? Because there's so much involved with ayahuasca um, on, on so many levels that, that many of us can't even understand. Yeah. Uh, well, it all comes but, down to this lowering of shields, you see. Mm. That's, these, that's essential. In order to let the entity I call Mother Ayahuasca in and yes. receive the teachings that she has to give, which, are, which can be very profound, uh, we have to lower our shields. And once your shields are down, 
there are these dark forces on the other side. Look, it's just like in the material world. I mean, there are this world, this realm, this physical realm. There, there, there is good and bad. You know, there are there are positive and negative individuals. We can we can find ourselves uh, beside somebody and we feel nurtured by that person. We we just sense that that is a good person, and we can find ourselves beside another person and we feel threatened and endangered by them, and they seem to draw our energy away from us. We've all met people like that who 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 project such negative energy that we ourselves are diminished by the encounter with them. It's the same on the other side of the veil, that there are positive and negative entities out there. And, and again, this is my belief system. I don't claim science behind this. I don't claim to prove it. But that's the best framework I can put it in. And that there is a danger in ayahuasca sessions that those negative entities will enter your psychic space. And like negative human beings, they actually thrive on causing misery. And, and causing suffering. That actually makes them stronger. Sometimes they are individual human beings who've gone into the session, and I've met people like this, who've gone into sessions with the deliberate intention of psychically dominating others and, and, and using the surrender of ayahuasca to gain access to the, to the psychic space of other, of other people. And somehow they grow from that. I, I pity them when it comes to the moment of their death and they have to make account for what they've done with their lives. It's not a good thing to take energy from others. We're here to give energy, not to not to take it. But this happens, and it happens in, in our realm, and it happens in the psychic realm. So what the shaman's job is, is to control that space, and to keep, if you like, let's use the word demonic forces at bay, keep them out, brush them away, and protect the space for those who are drinking there. And for a shaman to do that, he has to be, or she, very experienced and humble. There, there must be no ego there. This is not about the shaman. The shaman is there to facilitate and make the experience possible. This is about the medicine. The medicine is the only personality that we're really interested in encountering with ayahuasca. We don't want some big ego shaman setting up a personality cult and acting like some guru. The moment you see a shaman doing that, I would say, walk away. That's mm -hmm. not the person to drink ayahuasca with. And can you describe for us, because there are there is a dark side to ayahuasca, as mm. you've been describing, but I, I think above all, there's so much light with this medicine and, and, and incredible that's, healing. Exactly. And, and that's right. And it's important to be clear about that. I... I I feel called upon to emphasize the negative because I'm aware. I get a lot of mails from people, mm -hmm. emails and people who come to me through Facebook and they say, oh, uh, I see ayahuasca is being advertised on the internet. You know, there's a, there's a place where I can buy the ingredients on the internet. Should I do that? I say no, because the, the experiences I've had suggest to me that that's a risky course of action to take and I would not advise anybody to do that. And I feel the need to emphasize this because ayahuasca is so powerful. But having said all that, the bottom line is that ayahuasca is an amazing, majestic, magical, enchanted healing medicine, which can bring us to terms with ourselves and help us to understand who we are and how we need to redirect our lives. One of the aspects of ayahuasca that many people share. I've talked about encounters with entities, spirits, and so on and so forth. The other aspect is what I call the life review, that you see your life in a way that you've never seen it before. You see the impact that you have had on others. And that impact, you suddenly realize, 
wasn't always positive, that you weren't always that nurturing, helpful person that you've convinced yourself you are, that you have actually caused pain and suffering to others. And there's a strange way that ayahuasca allows you to see that from the other person's point of view. You just suddenly get it. And that's why often in ayahuasca ceremonies you will find people crying because they've, they, they, they're in tears because they've suddenly realized the pain they caused to others. It's not possible to go back and change the past. You can't undo what you did in the past. But you can learn from your mistakes and you can do your level best not to repeat them in the future. And that's one of the brilliant things that ayahuasca does, is it gives you that realization and thus it motivates you to be a better person, to be more nurturing, to be more positive, not to take the energies of others, but rather to rather to give. And I'm not saying that's easy. Again, no magic pills here. You know, it's not like you're going to drink ayahuasca and suddenly be this super person. That's not what happens. You're at the beginning of a path of work on yourself. And that path of work on yourself may take decades. It's not easy to change deeply ingrained bad habits. We do repeatedly fall back into, into negative aspects, but the, the realization that ayahuasca brings is fundamental to, to changing that, I believe. I'm not saying there's not other ways to do it. Of course there are. But ayahuasca is a great ally in changing our own lives and our impact on others for the better. And it's an ally that I would recommend to everybody if they have done the research and can put themselves in the right set and setting with the right shaman at the right time, at the right place. It's, a, it's brilliant for that. Uh, for healing all aspects of psychic damage, I would say that, I would say that this is at the heart of what ayahuasca is, is all about. Um, and, and, and helping us to be more loving, more positive, more nurturing people. Um, in, in every way I've seen transformations in the, in the lives of many people I know and in my own life because of, because of working with ayahuasca. And I think it's an experience that uh, if they can, everybody, every adult should have. Um, it, you know, it's one of those extraordinary experiences that, that is available to us in life. You know? And if we're going to go climb a mountain or go skydiving out of an airplane, you know, I would say go drink ayahuasca as well because, because it's going to challenge you in ways you'd never expected and, and you're going to emerge from it changed and, and transformed. Um, and and um, the other thing is the society that we live in makes us very suspicious of others. We, we, we doubt others' motives. We're very closed up and, and locked. We tend not to want to open our hearts and, and, and just embrace the other person. And one of the very beautiful things about an ay ayahuasca session that goes well, and 99% of them do go well, one of the very beautiful things about it is that sense of union that you get with the others who you've drunk ayahuasca with. That's another reason why I would say to people, don't go drink ayahuasca on your own, because part of the magic of the experience is drinking it with a group of other people. And, and the sharing that, that follows very typically in ayahuasca sessions. Different shamans handle them different ways, but what a lot of, um, a, a lot of shamans do is have a, have a sharing before the session where you express your intention and after the session to share your experiences. And suddenly you find that others through the night have been going through precisely the same kind of experiences that you've been going through. And you feel an intense empathy for them. And, the, and you do feel this empathy during the night itself. It's, it's, it's very interesting that this happens. And that experience of empathy 
of powerful empathy, of opening ourselves up to empathy, is a really important experience to have in the harsh, hard-lined, materialistic society that we live in today. And it's a rare experience to get. And, and again, I'm, it's important to be clear, this is not a magic pill, but it's allowing us to manifest what is already within us. It's just that we've locked it away for so long. Can you describe for us your most profound ayahuasca experience? Well, there have been a number. I mean, I'm, I'm on record uh, quite a bit already about how in 2011 ay ayahuasca stopped me smoking cannabis. Um, or rather, I should say, broke completely a 24-year habit of abuse of cannabis. I don't blame cannabis for this. It was me. I was, you know, it's really not a great idea to do anything 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and that's what I was doing with, with cannabis. And I was getting bent out of shape. Um, ayahuasca addressed this issue for me in 2011. Actually, the brew had addressed the issue for me before, but I'd ignored it. Uh, but in 2011, it became the central theme of five sessions with ayahuasca. Oh my gosh, that had to be exhausting. It was utterly, it was utterly exhausting. <laughs> and I was, and I was given the sense that unless I interrupted this habit and did something about it, um, that that I would never be right again. That I that I needed to make a change, and 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 it was very powerful, and it was and it was quite it was quite scary because I felt myself poised on the edge of an abyss, really, and I was shown that abyss. Um, and I came back from Brazil and stopped smoking cannabis and and stopped for three years until Joe Rogan smoked me up on his show the other day, you know, and I, that was the first time I touched cannabis for three years. My view now is uh, that I, I would never go back to that abusive relationship with cannabis. And actually, I don't want to be stoned all day. I really don't. I have no desire whatsoever to be stoned all day. I don't mind occasionally uh, in, a, in a sacred way or, or, or just in a sensual way being a little bit stoned. That's fine. But I don't want to I don't want to make it the central motif of my life anymore. And I'm grateful to Ayahuasca for giving me that healing, for showing me the pain that I was causing to others as a profoundly paranoid, jealous, suspicious person, which is what cannabis brought out in me. I'm not saying that cannabis caused that. I want to be clear about that. Cannabis is also one of the great plant allies. I'm saying that was in me already and cannabis brought it out more and more so that I just never trusted anybody, in, including my wife and partner, Santa, whose life I was making a misery with just ridiculous, absurd jealousies. And it was magical for me to have that stopped and to, and to come out of it to not, and, and for the fog to clear uh, and, and, and to find how really crazed I had been. Um, and, and I'm grateful for, the, for that healing, but to go through that healing, and Santa and I went through it together uh, over these five sessions, it was extremely traumatic and, and deeply, deeply disturbing. But I needed that huge kick up the ass in order to, to break this habit. Uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful to it. And it came in the form of a personality. It came in the form of a personality. I heard a voice. Mother Ayahuasca said to me, you have to surrender to me. And I said, okay, I surrender. And then I had the experience of, a, of an entity 
entering my body and moving through my body and my whole body started to tremble and I felt tremendous heat inside my chest and 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 worked her way up into my into my head and I I've, I felt myself in the hands of an enormous benign power which was which was giving me a second chance to to see where I was going in my life and to and to redirect it and um, it's it's almost impossible to put that experience into into words. I mean, words are what I do, but I just can't. I just actually can't express it. Go back to the ancient Greeks, you know, and and their contacts with gods and goddesses. It's something like that. It's just a really extraordinary experience, quite out of this world. I have had other encounters, another occasion with ayahuasca when I was. Um, at a, a, a low point in my life and feeling very, very negative about myself, where where she appeared to me as a serpent and wrapped herself around my body and put this huge head on my shoulders and just looked me in the eyes for what seemed like hours. And, and the message was, don't be so hard on yourself, you know. Um, the, the, it's, this, it's this powerful feeling of love and renewal that comes from ayahuasca that is that I think is incredibly important and but at the same time it's important to stress if you're going to drink ayahuasca you have to don't expect a, a completely magical overnight cure uh, expect to do the work expect to be required to do the work and to integrate the lessons you've learned into your daily life and that will go on and can go on uh, for, for, for years you know that's a very important part of it and I think just as you're describing how ayahuasca showed you not to be so hard on yourself, it yeah. really is a profound medicine for reconnecting yourself with spirituality, yes. reconnecting yourself with self-love. I yes. had, in my last experience in the jungle, I had finished my ayahuasca ceremony. And so I went back and I was lying in bed. And then I felt this force behind my shoulders just lift me out of the bed. Mm -hmm. And this was at a point I was so gone on right. ayahuasca, I could barely walk. Right, right. But it, was, it felt like the spirit was behind me, yeah. carrying me literally into my bathroom right. and then it just laid down I, I put both my hands on the sink and I yeah. looked up it like pushed my neck back and right. forced me to look at myself in right. the mirror right. and at that point I, I saw myself for the first time in my life mm -hmm. as not me but uh, through the eyes of God Yes. and and I saw this poor woman who, who just hadn't been loved enough mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. me yeah. Yeah. and and that vision still sticks with me today and, and I then my heart was just filled with so much love and, and I realized that ayahuasca was telling me you spent so much of your time fighting for others and trying to help others but, but what about you? You need to put you first. Yeah. yeah, because you know if you don't if you don't pay attention to yourself, you actually can't be that helpful to others. You've mm -hmm. got to you've got to do the work on yourself. It's really important to do that. And and, and ayahuasca is almost miraculous in the way that she makes this makes this possible and brings us the lessons that allow us to do it. And I've also had that experience of looking at myself in a mirror uh -huh. deep, deep in the grip of a brew and, and, and almost in a way seeing myself for the first time, you know. Yes, that that's how it was. It's yeah. it's it's really very very re remarkable remarkable thing so i would i would say to anybody you know put aside your prejudices consider this consider this uh, uh, amazing medicine and go and go work with it if you can in the right way in the right space with the right people do the research and also another thing that's important i've found that uh, sometimes people are too eager with ayahuasca mm -hmm. you know they're rushing at it like a bull at a gate and that's not the way to go the, the 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 cautious and careful approach when you're ready to drink ayahuasca ayahuasca will begin to speak to you this is this is something 
before you've had your session. That's something I've heard again and again. That there's that it's almost as though she's reaching out to you, and and you begin to know that the that the time is right. But it's not something to rush into uh, without thought, because somebody's saying it's great. It's something to investigate very, very, very carefully. And you may have your first or second or third ayahuasca sessions without having deep visions. I've met people who've drunk ayahuasca for the first time, they feel profoundly disappointed the next day because they didn't meet, you know, the 200 foot long serpent of love. They they maybe just saw some fleeting patterns. Um, but then you talk to them further and, and you realize that actually they've been they've been going through issues in their own lives all night and those and those issues were really important for them to go through um, some people detest the vomiting and the diarrhea um, but then again you know afterwards when they think about it they actually feel they got rid of some stuff they needed to get rid of it's what comes out with the physical vomiting is also some psychic stuff that you that you get rid of that you needed to clear often ayahuasca need this has been my experience needs to work with you for a while at the physical level in order for you to be ready to get into the deeper psychic experiences. Some people get it straight away, I mean just instantly, but others don't. And I would say don't be impatient, don't give up. Go with the brew. It's a school, it's not an instant, you know. This is a school we're entering here and, and there are profound lessons to learn and don't expect to learn them all on the first night. Um, I, you know, I think that's that's a very very important part of it. Another thing, also, um, it's very common in ayahuasca ceremonies to offer that second cup or the third cup. You start the ceremony with one cup, um, but very often, uh, an hour or two hours into the ceremony, a second cup will be will be offered. Be sure that the first cup hasn't worked before you drink the second cup, <laughs> because you can find yourself suddenly carried off into very deep space. Uh, it, uh, the whole message all along is never be too eager with ayahuasca. And I think that's true for all psychedelics yes. in general, is yeah. just to take it slow. Remember that these are sacred medicines, sacred medicines and, yeah. and you don't need to consume them all at once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because it, it's like you're sitting at dinner if you eat a steak and a pizza and a, a whole chicken and french fries, you're all at once sick. you're going to get sick. Yeah. And I've seen it happen to people close to me, yes. and um, and it's it's just really sad because yeah. they they do get so excited yes. about the medicines, yeah. and because they are so profound at healing. Yes. But but it's really important to control that and and just not go crazy on these it's, medicines. It's really important to to do that, and you know this is why uh, to bring these healing medicines to a, to a wider public, we need a change in attitude in the West, and we need a change of laws in the West. See, it's often difficult for people to experience multiple sessions because it's quite expensive and complicated and you have to take a holiday from your job and go down to Peru or Brazil. It's it's difficult. Ayahuasca sessions are increasingly available under the radar in the West, but I would like to see them above the radar. I would like to see uh, a, a real open situation where people can compare notes without fear of persecution by the legal authorities, uh, can compare notes on the effectiveness of, what, of one shaman or another, can really, in a complete open discussion, choose the group that they drink ayahuasca with, um, can go back for multiple lessons if they need to do so, uh, without spending vast amounts of money or having to leave their jobs. You know, we, this, is, this is something we need in the West. There is a profound spiritual sickness in the West. And the West is inflicting 
when I say the West, I I I am including Japan. You know, this is this is this is tech, really what I mean is technological society. There is a profound spiritual sickness in technological society, and technological society is imposing that on the rest of the world with ter- terrible terrible consequences. And and for spirituality, what do we have? You know, we have. Uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, where the priest or the rabbi or the mullah tells us that he is the sole intermediary between us and the divine. This is alienation, again, from our from ourselves. The next step we need to take forward, I believe, as a human species, is to take possession of our own spirituality and, and set these old religious models that have manipulated our fear and hatred and suspicion for too long, set them behind us. We've, we've moved on as a species. We don't need that anymore. We need, to, we need to enter the realm of personal spirituality, and psychedelics offer an extraordinary opportunity to do that. Uh, and so I'm not surprised that our society is so against psychedelics because it realizes that somewhere in the hierarchies of our societies and in the hierarchies of the big religions there are people who realize that profound psychedelic experiences can change everything and that people will no longer buy into those old models uh, if they're working with if they're working with psychedelics so we need to take that next step as a society if we're going to have a future actually I think that we are a grave danger to ourselves and to the world at the moment. And it's obvious to anybody who looks at the rapacious, uh, greedy, arrogant, cruel nature of technological society and the division and fear and hatred that are caused by the mainstream religions that these models don't work anymore, that they're broken and something else needs to be put in the place. And, and at the heart of that something else, we have there has to be a profound experience. This is not something that you can just teach in a school. It's not something you can go read in a book. You have to have that transformatory experience in order to take the next step. And what we should be doing in society is facilitating those transformatory experiences in a loving and positive and responsible way. Um, Aldous Huxley's book, Island, I don't know if you've ever come across it, but I would recommend everybody go read Island by Aldous Huxley. He's better known for Brave New World, which paints a dark picture of the future. But in in Ireland, we see a society where a psilocybin sacrament is central to the rite of passage from from teenage to adulthood, uh, and and where it is provided in a loving and positive space with all care and responsibility. That's what we need to be moving towards, in in my opinion. And I I think, you know, we're seeing ayahuasca spread around the world now. We've got ceremonies. uh, I know in Los Angeles, where I live, Mm -hmm. there are ceremonies happening all the time. in London yes. and even in Minnesota. Mm. Why do you think that this medicine is, is spreading so rapidly? Well, again, I may I may wax a little romantic here, and, yeah. and others may scoff at what I'm saying, but this is the spirit of the rainforest, mm-hmm. and the rainforest is under terrible threat in the world that we live in today. Terrible, it's dreadful what's happening in the great rainforests of Indonesia, of Africa, of the Amazon. Terrible, terrible things. And it's intriguing that out of the Amazon has come this powerful agent of, con- agent of consciousness change, which has been in its place in the Amazon for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and, and which now in this age, when, when we live at such a time of, of peril and when... And when Short the pursuit of short-term profits and short-term gains combined with a rapacious technology are, are threatening everything about the world we live in that out of the Amazon comes this amazing medicine. 
which is a combination of two plants, uh, one of which is a vine. And it's rather like, and, and in the Amazon they say, although the active ingredient is actually in the other plant, uh, which is usually the leaves of a, of a bush called Secotria viridis, that's the DMT in ayahuasca, it's the, it's the ayahuasca vine itself uh, that they say in the Amazon is the intelligence behind this. And so it's as though a vine is spreading all around the world, as, as vines do. And how do you bring about change in human beings? You bring about change by changing their consciousness. And that's what ayahuasca is all about. That's how the non-physical spiritual realm can access and change the material physical plane by working through human consciousness. Because conscious, human consciousness bridges those two realms. Uh, I'm convinced that it's not just a material phenomenon, that it is that it is manifesting through the material brain, yes, but it is not made by the brain. And therefore, it's possible to change consciousness. And that's what that's what ayahuasca is doing. And I see it as a as a magical and enchanted pro process that is waking people up all around the world. It's almost like the rainforest is trying to preserve itself. Yes, the rainforest <laughs> just by is, healing all, is trying exactly one by time. one person at a time. Uh, it is. I feel it is exactly that. That it, it it is the rainforest fighting back in this incredibly clever way by working through human consciousness to get us to wake up and say, "My God, what are we doing? What on earth are we doing? What are we doing with our personal lives? And what are we doing with this monstrous society that we've that we've created, which has sought for so long to persuade us that we're just about production and consumption, and that there's nothing else to us at all? It's saying, wake up! You have severed your connection to spirit. Mm -hmm. Reconnect, reconnect now. It's urgent. It's important. It must. It must happen. And you have to make that choice. And I've seen many of people uh, who I've drank ayahuasca with completely change their entire careers and lives after consuming the medicine. Absolutely. Some businessmen who now are no longer investing in oil and now looking at more socially responsible companies. Defin definitely. And, and that happens overnight. I've seen really, I mean, what else can do that what transform else can, people like that Exactly. Overnight? What else can do that? What else can bring about that, that literally overnight transformation? And, and, and this is an interesting point, too, because... because um, in addition to the to the to the love and the understanding and and the growth in consciousness that ayahuasca can facilitate, there's also this um, creativity in in ayahuasca. Um, the the work that the artists do after they've drunk ayahuasca often radically changes. It becomes very visionary and really really amazing. People like Alex Gray, you know, for example, or Martina Hoffman in 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 Boulder, who've worked a lot with ayahuasca. There, they would be the first to say that their art has been transformed by their experiences with with ayahuasca. In my case, I after years of writing, you know, journalism and, and nonfiction, um, I got inspired to write novels. This is the you know, I'm not an artist, I can't paint stuff, but but my creativity is in the, the realm of words and suddenly I found myself writing fiction as well as as well as nonfiction. Now, I don't believe I would have done so if I if I hadn't drunk ayahuasca. So I'm I'm grateful for that too. There all of us have this creative side in us but that but there's a tendency to get locked into particular patterns and one of the things ayahuasca does is just break that lock and allow us to see other aspects of ourselves that we haven't seen before and i think that's true in society as a whole that we're locked into a technological material framework and it's become very dangerous mm -hmm. and we need to break that and one of the most powerful ways to do is is through ayahuasca
And you've described the war on drugs. You're obviously not a fan. I think the war on drugs is an evil, malicious yeah, enterprise, which has caused huge damage to humanity. Um, it, it really, it, it's almost impossible to calculate the damage that it's done. It's been a dreadful, terrible thing and an utter failure in terms of its own goals. Um, there are, of course, drugs that are that are dangerous and harmful. I don't, I don't deny that. But we don't need a war on drugs to teach us that. What we need is good information. You know, adults are actually capable of making rational decisions if given good information they trust. The point I often make on this is that tobacco in the last 20 years in the West has declined radically in its consumption, not because some government agency threatened to throw us in prison if we smoked tobacco, but simply because we were given good information that we trusted. I, I know why I gave up smoking cigarettes in 1988. I gave up smoking cigarettes because I had come to believe that I was really damaging my health. And I took a, I took a responsible choice regarding my own health. And if there are drugs that are dangerous to our health, then all we need to know is be given the information and, and we can make the choices. We don't need to be threatened with jail sentences. We don't need to empower huge bureaucracies with arms, with weapons, and with the right to break down our doors and, and enter and invade our privacy and, and throw us in prison. We don't need to empower the state to do that. A lot of what the war on drugs is about is actually about empowering the state. It's an excuse to empower the state and to present this false model that we cannot take responsibility for ourselves, that the state must do it for us. This is the huge error that we're making, and the war on drugs is right at the heart of that error. We need to take sovereignty over ourselves. We need to disempower the state, and the war on drugs has grotesquely empowered the state. And in the process, it has also empowered criminal gangs that make vast fortunes out of drugs that they would not make vast fortunes out if those drugs were legal. We need to legalize all drugs and provide honest, good information to people about the harms and the risks of those drugs. I know that that's a radical position to take, but just face it, the war on drugs has caused huge misery it has empowered vast armed bureaucracies, and it has utterly failed in its own objectives. It's time to throw it away. And so how do you think, do you see legalization in, in the future? What And what do you think will get us there? Well, the great thing is, it's the American people that are leading the way in this. It's a great thing because America has been the dark force behind the global war on drugs, going back to the time of that obnoxious individual called Richard Nixon. It has been the dark force that has led many other countries to follow the United States in declaring a war on drugs, which is really not a war on drugs, it's a war on consciousness, and it's a war on people. And it has resulted in people being executed for taking drugs in many countries around the world. You know, in the United Arab Emirates, you can actually be sent to prison for four years if you're found even having cannabis in your bloodstream. That's called possession in the body. What a ludicrous idea that is. All of this has come from the United States advocacy at the federal government level of the war on drugs, which has been particularly focused on cannabis. It's in, in, in the United States, as I understand it, cannabis is still classified as a Schedule One drug. How absurd can you get? How ridiculous to place cannabis in the same category as heroin. It's a completely insane thing to do. But this is what the United States has done. And because of United States economic and political power, all other countries around the world have simply followed suit unquestioningly and have kowtowed and bowed down to this model. So it's great that at the grassroots level in the United States, state by state, 
this is being changed. That I was just in Washington state. Cannabis is completely legal there. Federal government may not like it, but the people of Washington have decided that that's what they're going to do. Um, and, and in, I think it's 23 states now altogether, correct me if I'm wrong, it may be more, uh, because it's changing every day, uh, where either cannabis is available for, for medical reasons, which is just another way of making cannabis available, as a matter of fact, or um, it's at least decriminalized, or it's totally legal. And, and this, is, this is happening because responsible adults in the United States are saying, we don't accept for the federal government to tell us what to do with our own consciousness. We can smoke cannabis responsibly, and, and it's important to us to do so. So, you know, go away, war on drugs. We're just going to do this, whether you like it or not. And that's a, that's a, a tradition and a spirit of individual independence in America, which I think is a very important part of the American character and of, and, 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 and of American history. So it's great that individual Americans, by voting with their feet, are righting the great wrong that was done by the federal government of America and are changing the law state by state. And the law cannot stand much longer. Cannabis is going to open the floodgates to the legalization of many, many other so-called drugs. It's going to do that because the war on drugs has been based on myths and lies. And those myths and lies are disproved by the successful results of legalizing cannabis. Suddenly, we all get it. The emperor really does wear no clothes. Cram, it has been such a pleasure talking with you today. I love your passion for this topic, and, and your work is something to be admired by all of us. Thank and, you. And hopefully one day, <laughs> you know, we can all go hang out and have a, a wide open ayahuasca or yes. mushroom ceremony, uh, you know, right out in California. Yeah. I'm hoping that will be the first state to really, since they really pushed marijuana, will yes. push legalization of all drugs. I, I have a lot of faith that's going to happen. I have a lot of faith that's going to happen too. We live in a time of tremendous change. It's a very exciting time and it's great to be in the midst of it. And how can our listeners uh, get in contact with you and continue to follow your work? The best way is through my website, grahamhancock.com. And at the bottom of the opening page on the website, there are links to public events that I do. There are links to my author Facebook page. And I'm very active on Facebook. So, you know, come and join me. All right. Thank you, Graham. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.